What we're going to look at, I, I entitled this morning, The Charismatic Church, and uh, immediately that creates different images in people's minds. Maybe you're not a Christian, you've come here for the first time, you think, what's he talking about? Uh, maybe you are a Christian and you come from a charismatic background, you go, hallelujah, about time, it's what we need. And maybe you are a good, dyed-in-the-wool Presbyterian, and you're thinking, uh-oh, what's going to happen here? Um, but I think we need to get an understanding of what the charismatic church is. God has given us the church. The church is described as the bride of Christ. The church is meant to be, and often is, a beautiful thing. Yet, many times there are ugliness, and a lot of people have trouble with the church, and I would consider it to be the number one reason that many people disbelieve. Now, we like to talk about strategies, or some people do. Many of us are fed up of hearing about strategies and plans and so on. It all sounds business-like, talk, and not action. But I want us to look at Romans 12 as an example of uh, what God's strategy is for the church, a transformed church, a charismatic church. We're going to be ordaining elders and deacons today, and that doesn't sound very charismatic. It sounds bureaucratic. It sounds institutionalized. Um, a lot of people use that word without really knowing what it means. But it is very uh, charismatic in the sense that the elders are those who provide spiritual leadership and pastor the flock. The deacons are those who provide diaconal leadership, caring for the practical needs of the flock and for the poor. And that's a, a very simple pattern for the New Testament church, and it's one I hope that we will be able to have ourselves. So let's read Romans 12, verses 1 to 8. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body." and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully." I want us to look, first of all, uh, at what we're going to go through this, and it may be that you have questions and comments. There's a lot in here, so uh, please feel free to comment or ask questions afterwards. But I genuinely believe this. If the elders and deacons and diaconal assistants in this congregation follow this pattern, if the members of this church follow what Paul has said here, then you can forget all the strategies in the world because this church will blossom and flourish. I think this is, to me, when I was studying this this week, uh, 
One thing was, I thought I knew this passage, and I discovered something completely new that I hadn't seen before. And the other was, I just thought, oh, this is really what we need. So I, I hope you'll stick with it. I hope also, if you're not a Christian, you're thinking, okay, all this about the church and elders and deacons, how does that work? Well, what does that mean to me? I think it means simply this, that we'd want you to become a Christian and to follow Jesus Christ. And when you follow Jesus Christ, you become part of His church. And when you become part of His church, you become part of that family, that building, and uh, the organization within it and the leadership and so on becomes really, really important. So, first of all, verses 1 uh, to 2 say that, tell us, I'm, just, I'm not going to go into this in any detail, but it's necessary. It, it's saying to us that we respond to God's mercies, and that is the whole of Romans 1 to 11 that Paul has been explaining. How do we respond? We offer our bodies as living sacrifices. We prayed in the prayer of confession, Lord, you know, you asked for my eyes to see poverty. I didn't see. We offer our eyes. We offer our hands. Um, we offer our bodies, which are fearfully and wonderfully made, to serve Jesus Christ. We refuse to be conformed to the pattern of this world. We are rebels. We are um, nonconformists in the best sense of the word. And we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. There's a total transformation in the way that we think in our worldview. Now, here's the problem. I suspect this is even true for every single person here this morning. Maybe not everyone, but most people come with their minds made up. Most of us know what we think, and we're looking for what would satisfy our already made-up minds. And God continually says to us, no. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for you know, five months, five years, 50 years. God is continually asking us to have our minds renewed. A closed mind, a mind set in stone, is not a Christian mind. We are told here that we are going to be challenged and changed, and that should surely be the correct attitude that we have when we come to the Word of God. I came to this passage at the beginning of this week thinking, I know this. And when I started looking, I realized, I don't know this. And then I was very convicted by some of the things within it. I want us to be a charismatic church. I don't like the idea of any particular group of Christians claiming the name charismatic any more than I like the name of any uh, particular group of Christians claiming the name Catholic or even Baptist. These are things that belong to the whole church of Jesus Christ. And charismata, the word that's used, we get from which we get charismatic, is charismata. Charismata is a typical Greek word of two words put together. And it really means charis is grace. And you, as you look through this passage, you will see how grace is mentioned again and again and again. Charis is grace and the matter are the gifts. It's the gifts of grace. So when we say we're looking for a charismatic church, we're wanting this church, St. Peter's, to be a church that is characterized by gifts of grace. We need our leadership and our elders and deacons to be those who lead in this respect. But it's true, of course, for all of us. How does it work? Well, very simply, 
And Paul begins with humility. For by the grace, for by the charis given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. We should not measure ourselves by each other. We should measure ourselves by what Paul calls the measure of faith. When you stop and you, and you think about it, you realize that most of us do measure ourselves by other people. We would look at someone who we perceive to be worse than us, and we would go, thank the Lord I'm not like them. You know, like I'm extremely sound theologically, and uh, I can look at the Archbishop of Canterbury and go, ah, he's not quite there yet. You know, or I look at the Pope and say, ah, not quite there yet. And so I can think of myself as sound and other people as not being sound. It may be that you're very good at the gift of hospitality, and you look around at other people and you say, they never have anyone to their house. It makes you feel better because you're comparing yourself with other people. If you're a racist, you blame other races. If you're a man, you blame a woman. That's what Adam did right at the very beginning, or vice versa. We get frustrated and angry with other people. Those of us who are biblical Christians will look down on, perhaps on people who are uh, liberal and so on. In church, you can look down at other people. You can say, I dress better than them, or I'm not as snobby as they are, or at least when I was young, I knew how to control my children. There are all these different kinds of things that people can say. But humility, proper biblical humility, requires us to think properly of ourselves. Paul uses the word think four times in these verses, and we are to think properly of ourselves. Now, that means we don't think of ourselves too highly, but it also means that we don't think of ourselves too lowly. You know, the kind of person who goes, I'm rubbish, nobody would love me, I couldn't do anything. Don't be such a whinger, and don't be so unbiblical, and don't, don't use that as an excuse, your patheticness for being pathetic. Please don't ever, ever go there. But some of us have the oper- other problem, we think far too highly of ourselves. We do need to beware of false humility, but when we see in accordance with the faith, with what God has given us, we will use that and not deny our own gifts. James Denny has it beautifully, puts it beautifully. To himself, every man is in a sense the most important person in the world, and it always needs much grace to see what other people are and to keep a sense of moral proportion. God has maybe blessed you in extraordinary ways. He's maybe blessed you with a clear understanding of Scripture. He's maybe blessed you with a commitment to follow Jesus Christ. And all that would be absolutely ruined if you thought that you were better than other people. It really would. And, um, you know, humility is so difficult. I admire C.J. Mahaney so much because he wrote a book on humility. It really, for me, that's extraordinary. um, Because it does sound a little bit like you can put it across almost, and he doesn't, it's a beautiful little book. But you can put it almost across as, uh, my sermon today is entitled, Why I'm the Humblest Person in the World. Uh, That's obviously a a contradiction. Now, there's a problem here, and this is what I learned that was new. You see that at the end of the verse, it says, in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. I always understood that as saying, judge yourself by the amount of faith that you have. But that's actually a wrong reading. It's a possible reading 
but one that doesn't make sense. And for me, it's no wonder that I was kept getting it wrong because I kept thinking, I don't have enough faith and I can't do this and I can't do that. Here, the alternative reading and the better reading, I think, by a mile, it says that we are to uh, judge ourselves in accordance with the common Christian faith. The measure of the faith is the idea. We measure ourselves not by the amount of faith that we have, because how can we measure that anyway? But we measure ourselves by the standard of faith, that is, God's standard. It's the same for every Christian. It's not different levels of faith that people have. And I do think that it's important that we grasp that and realize that. There's a temptation sometimes for a church to say, and and this inevitably happens, you know, we were praying for the steeple or... Um, Central Baptist or whatever. And every now and then, because you come to a particular church, there's a temptation to denigrate other churches to justify what you're doing. Of course, I go to the best church. You know, I, it's, um, it's interesting. I was talking to somebody who said they were standing at a bus stop and a couple of students were talking. And one said, I, I've seen you. Do you go to the Christian Union? Yeah, sometimes. You're a Christian? Yeah. What church do you go to? And said, I think she went to Central Baptist and turned to the girl who was talking to her and just said, what church do you go to? Um, and she said, uh, the, oh, David Robertson's there. And said, oh, is that the free church? She says, no, 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 I don't go to the free church. I go to St. Pete's. But <laughs> it's, sometimes there is a temptation for us to elevate a church or to denigrate other churches. But the standard we are always to measure ourselves by is not other churches, but it's what God says to us in His Word. Now, therefore, humility is absolutely essential. I'm astonished at how many elders, people who've become elders, and the way eldership has developed in Scotland over the years, to almost being a badge of honor, to being something, uh, almost a status symbol, that you had to be a bank manager or a doctor in order to become an elder. Where do we get that idea? That was, that's absolutely ridiculous. An elder is to serve God's people, and there has to be humility. I'm astonished about how easily I myself and many other ministers are like Protestant popes. We, we, put our, we set ourselves up, and that should not be the case. We need a proper humility. I was told once that the last person you ever want to upset in a church is the presenter. And the charismatic version of that, using charismatic in the denominational sense, is uh, whatever you do, don't upset the worship leader. And you know the kind of aggro and, and things that can happen in praise bands and amongst preachers and so on. We need to have humility. But we also need uni- unity and diversity. Verses 4 to 5, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to the others. If you want to look at this in more detail, look at 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul says the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body, so it is with Christ. One body many parts. Now, that unity and diversity is God-given. It's Spirit-led. It's the body having members. And when we talk about communion, we talk about people 
uh, as well, becoming members in the church. Um, membership has no meaning apart from a body. It's not a personal thing. You cannot be a member of nothing. You are a member of a body. It's a body in which there are many, many different functions. There's a mutual interdependence. There's an organic unity, purposeful diversity of the members and their functions and mutual needs and benefits. Now, when Paul wrote this to the church in Rome, it was very important because it was a church that was struggling with being a multi-ethnic Christian community, with people coming from different religious and social backgrounds. And we struggle with that too. There are people who like to divide churches according to race, or they like to divide churches according to social class. We're, you know, a middle-class church, or we reach working-class people. And I think there are dangers even within that context of different groups, different cliques, different personality clashes. And Paul is really saying here, to put it into kind of modern jargon, he's basically saying, get over yourselves. The image that he has of the body is very, very strong. And I think that uh, we need to grasp what that means and what body ministry is. Which brings us on to these charismata, the list that he gives of the gifts of grace. There's another list, in, there's two other lists actually in 1 Corinthians. There's also a list in Ephesians. They are all different. What this means is that these lists are not absolute, they're not complete. There are other things that I think that we could add. But we'll look at these ones. Let me give some basic principles about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Gifts are given, not earned. You don't make a really, really earnest effort. I remember one time when I was particularly bothered about whether I should speak in tongues or not and decided I should. And boy, was I, what was I put through? Torture to try and get this gift. I didn't want to fake it. One of the guys said to me, just fake it, Dave. That's what everyone else does. And I didn't want to do that. And, you know, sit around. I remember sitting around holding hands and saying, look at the candle and concentrate really hard and ask God to give you this gift and just keep going and keep going and fast for seven days and just, you know, I mean, it would drive anyone mad. And yet, sometimes that's how people treat the gifts. You can earn them. You can earn them. It is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit who give the gifts. They come through the Spirit. They glorify Jesus the Son. They come from the Father. They are sovereignly distributed as God wishes, not as we wish. Which is why, incidentally, when someone says, David, are you against something like speaking in tongues? The answer is, no, I can't be. Because God is sovereign, and God can grant whatever gifts He wishes to people. And I haven't found anything in the Bible that says that, well, certain gifts completely stopped. I can't find that, so I have to stick with what the Scripture says. But just as I haven't found anywhere in the Bible that says you must have this particular gift. In fact, I look at the criteria, and I see that the reason that the gifts are given is for building up the church. You do not get a gift for your own personal benefit. It is for building up God's church. Paul's concern is that each Christian would use whatever gifts they have energetically and properly and not to worry about the gifts they don't have. There's a quote from a Latin author, Horace, who says, uh, the, lo- the lazy ox wants to bear the saddle while the horse wants to plow. Meaning just simply, 
Stop wasting your time saying, oh, if only I had that gift or that gift. I mean, I look at the, the band, and I was looking at Jared in particular playing, and the others are singing. I, said, I wish I could play. You know, I wish I could be that really cool minister who stands up here with a guitar and just pluck off a tune like that, that I could rap a sermon to you, you know, that I could paint like Naomi or Owen or whatever and just go, watch this, you know. And, but I can't. I don't have those gifts. And there's no point in me worrying about that. I have to stick with the gifts that I have got. And that's the same with you. Now, Paul lists these gifts, particular gifts here. As I say, it's not comprehensive. He lists them as two types, speaking gifts and service gifts. And I think they fit very neatly into gifts of elders and deacons uh, and deaconesses as well, because the New Testament does have deaconesses. And I think that uh, we'll just, I, I just want to go through them just to summarize what they are and to encourage you in the use of uh, these gifts. They are really gifts of service, though. You should be asking, I should be asking, how can I make the best use of my gift so as to benefit each and every one? And I'm not going to boast about my gifts. Luther puts it beautifully, as Luther always does. All this he writes in the interest of unity, for nothing is likely to cause so much division as when people do not stay within the proper bounds of their calling, but neglect their own ministry and break in upon others. You know, it's strange sometimes you have a, a, a fellowship group or a study group, and to me, the worst kind of Bible study group is what I call the democratic one. It's when we're told everyone has an opinion and everyone's opinion is equally valid. And I'm going, no, don't be stupid. What if their opinion's wrong? You say, well, somebody say, oh, I don't really like speaking in public and I've got really nothing to say. I would say, if you want to say something, say it. If you want to keep quiet, keep quiet. There are people who have gifts of teaching. And there are other people who have lots of questions, and there are people who are very insightful. But let's stop trying to mold everyone to be exactly the same. Begins then, let's just go through these. Prophecy, prophesying. List that first. What is prophecy? It is the gift of conveying to other Christians truth that has been made known to the prophet from God. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, says Paul, especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. Now, in Ephesians 2.20, we are told that the church is built on this foundation, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Well, what about prophets today? We misunderstand prophecy if we limit it or even make the main aspect of it predicting the future. I've no doubt that there are prophets who are able to do that. But the main emphasis of prophecy today is surely got to be this, the proclamation of God's Word, which is more sure and more certain than the Word of the prophets. Calvin summarizes it like this, in the Christian church, therefore, Prophecy at the present day is simply the right understanding of Scripture and the particular gift of expounding it, since all the ancient prophecies and all the oracles of God have been concluded in Christ and His gospel. It includes edification, building people up, exhortation, provoking people. It includes education, teaching people what God's Word send. Who can prophesy? Not everyone. It's a gift given by God. 
It's not given to everyone. I find it particularly interesting that in the New Testament, women prophesied as well. And therefore, when someone says, well, you'd never allow women to teach in the church, the answer to that has to be no. There are limits, if you like, that are based upon what the Scripture says. It's very clear for me, for example, that we couldn't ordain women as elders. And if you want me to explain that to you, it'll take a long, long time. So let's have several coffees and work that one through. But I honestly believe the Scriptures teach that. But I also believe that the Scriptures teach that women can prophesy. That really is quite straightforward. Acts 21 verse 9, Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now again, the prophet is to prophesy in proportion with their faith. What does that mean? I just believe enough that what I'm about to say really, really is from God. No. It's back again to this idea of the faith. You prophesy in accordance with the Word of God. If I say something that is not from the Scriptures, that is not supported by Scriptures, that is not in the context of Scripture, then you don't believe it. Prophet's words should be tested. Otherwise, we walk straight into heresy. Hugh was praying for Brazil. Churches which are rapidly growing need teachers. This church will fall apart completely unless there are many teachers within it, many prophets within it. Please don't think, well, I prophesy when I feel that this is right or I feel God's Word. I mean, if I stand up here and say, I feel this, that may be correct from my point of view, but from your point of view, it's meaningless. Why should you listen to what I say? Because I have a strong feeling. You know, I could have just had a bad cheese night or uh, a lot of different things that cause the feelings. It's if it's according to the Word of God. And elders, by the way, have to be prophets. They have to be apt to teach. Serving, the word is diakonai, meaning ministry. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirits as Paul. There are different kinds of service, diakonai, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Diakonai is used in Acts 6 to refer both to the ministry of the Word, actually, as well as the waiting on tables. I think that's at the heart of spiritual gifts. We often forget that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. We need that old cliche, the servant heart. There's a lot of lowly service to be done, and anyone who has the gift of doing it should rejoice at the wonder of divine grace. You will find everything that you are asked to do in this church incredibly annoying. Because you think, well, why am I doing this? What am I doing this for again? What's it? You're doing it because you're a servant. You're doing it because you're a son and you're a daughter and you want to please your heavenly Father. Serving here, though, carries particularly the idea of ministries of mercy, and they are essential to the church. Paul, for example, has just written this fantastic letter to the Romans full of deep Bible teaching, theological significance. And he says to them, I can't come and tell you about this personally because I have to go to Jerusalem. I'm in Greece. I have to go to Jerusalem. I'm going the opposite direction. I really want to go to Spain, but I'm going to go to Jerusalem and then come back. And the reason I'm going to Jerusalem is I want to deliver the gift from the Greek churches to the poor in Jerusalem. So ministry to the poor was so important to Paul, he was prepared to hold up. And because of that, incidentally, we end up with a letter to the Romans. He was prepared to, to, to stop going to see the new church plants in Rome. It is very, very crucial and vital that we see that as an important part of the church's work. And we are 
we're just not there yet. Teaching. It's the, teaching is just the transmission of Christian doctrine. The things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. This is desperately needed as people pour into the church. Where are the teachers? Sunday school, fellowship groups, Bible studies, one-to-one. The elder is to be apt to teach and to study to teach. Now, I've heard it put this way, why do we still need teachers when we have books and the internet? Because human interaction is still the best way to learn. Because human interaction, you can question, you can discuss. The internet and books are a source of information, but no matter what you say, they are not ultimately really interactive. We do not, and we should not, learn in isolation. We learn in community. And uh, I ask you to pray and be prepared to be the answer to your own prayers, that as God works around us and draws people in, that we will have more and more teachers. The days of people turning up in church, going with a Christian background, knowing everything, working it all out, being converted, and going, yeah, I fit in, those days are gone. And people have to be patiently taught. They have to unlearn so many things. You cannot expect them to be instantly spiritually mature. And indeed, if you do, it's a sign that you yourself are spiritually immature. Another gift, the gift of encouraging. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Now, some think that this gift is a gift of um, other kind of speaking ministries like writing or singing and so on. And I can understand that because, you know, there was somebody in the congregation here once wrote me a letter, and it was just so encouraging just to get a letter that was just nice, you know, handwritten as well. Uh, those of you who are under 25, try it sometime. It's really quite astonishing. Uh, there's a thing called pen and paper, and, and it, it, it's incredible how beautiful you can make it, and it's so much more personal. Just don't go for your personalized font on the computer, because we all know that's from Bill Gates. It's not from you with your own handwriting. But that can be a real gift of encouragement. Singing can be a real gift of encouragement. I love the, the word that's used here, of, of paracleo, which a term is used, parakletos, the Holy Spirit, is the encourager. Now, just please stop and think about this a minute. My tendency is, and I suspect many of you, is not really to be an encourager. We really are a private phraser from Dad's army. You know, gloom, doom, and more gloom and doom. We see people's faults remarkably quickly and are very, very reluctant to praise them for their qualities or to encourage them because, well, we don't want them to get big-headed. You know, that's, to me, that's just the very opposite of what's being said here encouraging, exhorting, comforting, consoling, and counseling. I'm going to mention him because he's not here, but I find Bob Aykroyd, who's our inter-moderator just now, I find him a great encouragement and a great encourager. He always does that. Eric Alexander, some of you know, is a, is a great preacher, and um, I mean, to me, he's just one of the best preachers Scotland's ever produced. And one Sunday, I was standing at the door there in the old church, and it was coming towards Christmas, and I was expecting a congregation of about 20 people, and in walked this truly brilliant preacher, and I thought, you know what my thought was? Oh, no. So I shook his hand, and I said, Mr. Alexander, it's wonderful to have you here, which was a lie, um, 
but it's wonderful to have you here. We have a custom in the free church, and that is when a visiting preacher comes in, we ask him to take the sermon. So would you mind preaching? And he said, uh, I'll not imitate his voice. He has this deep voice that if you read the back of a cornflakes placket, you would go, wow. And he, he uh, shook my hand and he said, David, no, I've come to hear you, brother. And when he came out, he made me feel like I was the best preacher in the world. I knew I wasn't, but he just had this incredible gift of encouragement, not by being sycophantic or fawning or whatever, but just encouraging people, please, let's have some Barnabases in this place, or Barnabai, or whatever the female version is, where we, where we encourage one another. We can do this in so many ways, the stirring speech, friendship to the lonely, writing letters, emails. Luther says the teacher transmits knowledge, the encourager stimulates. Another gift. I've never heard anyone pray for this gift. I've heard people say, Lord, give me the gift of tongues, or give me the gift of healing, or give me the… I've never heard anyone say, Lord, give me the gift of contributing to the needs of others. But we should. I think it's a great gift. It's both collective and private benevolence. In terms of the deacons, it's the distribution of the public property of the church like this building here. It's not a luxury item for us to say, wow, we've got a nice church. We are the church. This is a building that we use, and it's to be used for the community. It's to be used to bring people to hear about Jesus. I had an architectural PhD student from St. Andrews here this week, and he came into the building, and he said, wow, is is this really a free church? He says, it's so open. It's so light. It's so… He said, I'd want to bring my friends here. I said, please do. You know, if you're here, by the way, thanks. But um, he, it was, I just thought, that's what we're doing. We're not about creating monuments. We're about trying to help people. And that means we have to give. Generously here means single-mindedly. It means only with the motive of helping the other person. It doesn't mean we give so that we get back. Ananias and Sapphira are an example in the New Testament of wrong, giving with wrong motives. Malachi 1 verses 13 to 14, God complains about the givings of His people because you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands? No, we shouldn't. Leadership. Two verses up there for you to look at. It includes the idea of caring for. There's a wonderful book we've asked the elders to read called, or we're going to ask you to read if we haven't asked you already, The Shepherd Leader. The elders are to work hard. The elders are to direct the affairs of the church well. Now, I think the only thing I really want to say about this is that um, elders in the church are not here to restrict, and they're not here as business managers. They are here to govern diligently as part of the flock An elder who is slack or lazy is one who really should not be an elder. Look at Ezekiel 34. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curd, you clothe yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You've not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You've not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You've ruled them harshly and brutally. If you go to the National Museum of Scotland, you can see uh, 
a display of the church throughout Scotland, and some of it has the ways that elders and Kirk Sessions behaved appallingly badly. But it's not just in a Presbyterian setup. I remember uh, in friends in what, was, what we will call charismatic churches, but as I said, I don't like the term, uh, being incredibly damaged by what was called heavy shepherding which was ludicrous. It was insane. It was when the leader was taking the position of God and expected to be treated like God. And that's just wrong. We need really good, positive leadership. And the last one is showing mercy. Since God is merciful, we should be merciful too. We should show it cheerfully. It means caring for anyone who's in need or in distress, orphans and widows, handicapped and the sick, I love um, Adolf, or Traudel Junge, who was uh, Adolf Hitler's secretary, said of him, his opinion about the Christian church was he thought that the Christian religions were outdated, hypocritical institutions that lured people into them. And then he says, in nature, the law of the struggle for survival has reigned from the first. Everything incapable of life, everything weak is is eliminated. Only mankind, and above all the church, have made it their aim to keep alive the weak, those unfit to live, and people of an inferior kind. That's what we are about. We are about helping the weak. We're not about attacking and putting people down. It's not a, we don't do mercy ministries so that we can show people how nice we are or so we get them to become Christians. We do it because they're made in the image of God. And we do it not reluctantly nor patronizingly, but cheerfully. You know, the kind of thing that you do that you have the kind of grim determination to get through an unpleasant task? uh, um, One of the nurses who initially really annoyed me, but after a while I really grew to love her, uh, when she would come and I had to be cleaned and so on as in hospital and, and couldn't move and so on, and she would come and do that, and she'd be so insufferably cheerful. You know, how are you this morning, my dear? You know, I was thinking, how can you do that with such an unpleasant task? But actually, it was great. It was wonderful. Like it says there, a cheerful heart is a good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. And uh, I much prefer that kind of treatment than, say, Nurse Cratchit, the sour-faced person who does their duty. But boy, do they let you know how miserable they are doing it. Calvin says, for as nothing gives more solace to the sick or anyone else distressed than to see those cheerful and promptly assisting them, So, uh, to observe sadness in the countenance of those by whom assistance is given makes them feel themselves despised. You help someone and you don't do it from a cheerful and willing spirit. You you make people feel like they're dirt and that you're you're patronizing them. You're looking down on them. A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. My hope and prayer is that we would be a cheerful and joyful people led in service by joyful and cheerful leaders. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for its clarity, and thank you for its challenges, and thank you for its provocations, and thank you that it is there for us to obey. It's there for us to honor you in that way. It's there for us to rejoice in that you've not left us on our own to just make our own way, but you've given us these basic principles And we pray that you would help us now as we uh, go on to ordain new elders and deacons and that all of us 
would be those who use whatever gifts you have given us for your glory and the good of your people. In your name we ask it. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.